know, okay, I'm gonna say it, everyone. I I had a whole thing planned. This this is our second episode back after the hiatus. This is I was gonna I was gonna go full showman. I was gonna do stupid visual gag that no one could see because it's an audio medium, and I was gonna paint myself silver. I was gonna paint myself silver, but then I remembered that if those Homestuck episodes have taught me anything, I am not going to take a bath full of Sharpie. Welcome to Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman, everyone. Yes, I am the herald of this podcast, I guess. I ride around on a surfboard telling you to all that you all you all should read the original Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And in this specific case, the Galactus Trilogy a.k.a. Fantastic Four issues 48, 49, and 50, written, co-plotted, and drawn by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And I am joined by a dear friend, a so, someone I've been trying to get on this podcast since I met him, Garrett Hildebrandt. What's good? How are we doing today? And I'm just in admiration of you that you were willing to go for the full bit on that, as it were. I thought... You wanted to go full, listen, full Silver Surfer. Listen, I have recorded nearly five hours of content specifically about restaurants in comic books and food in comic books. Yes. Only two and a half of those hours were paid for by a listener. So I am willing to commit. Yes. Um, I'm just Garrett. So, I admire it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Tell them your experience with comics, with the Fantastic Four in particular, all that sort of jazz. Absolutely. Well, hello everyone. My name is Garrett Hildebrandt, as Jackson uh, mentioned, and I met Jackson this summer through a Shakespeare production of Love's Labor's Lost. We were in the gaggle of guys, and. I am just the biggest fan of comics ever since I was a kid. I was so obsessed with uh, Marvel, specifically classic Marvel. I, as a kid, remember getting the Spider-Man at 1960s VHS tapes and then watching them, and like to a point where I would break the VHS player. And before each uh, episode, uh, you would see Stan Lee, rest in peace talking about his inspiration behind the characters, and how he came up with a name, how he came up with their personality, and how he really kind of made them iconic. And, like, that sparked in a love for him, and a love for all of his creations, and eventually it led me to Fantastic Four. I came to learn, years later, you know, Spider-Man is, is a most people's gateway superhero, I would say. Yeah. Like, he's the one that introduces a lot of us at a young age to that world of characters. Because we know about Batman and Superman, but Spider-Man we can relate to because he's young, like us. And, like, or like we were. And he... But then you learn more and more about the other heroes in the Marvel canon. And I did not know that at the time uh, when Stanley was thinking of breaking out on his own, his wife Joan said... Stan, before you quit, just write one story. One story that 
is just the way you would have wanted it told. And he wrote the original Fantastic Four, where they went to space, they fought the Mole Man, the whole thing. And he made characters that were already so... Like, their power sets were unique, but the thing that made them so unique was that they bounced off each other personality-wise. Like, Reed Richards wasn't just a super genius, he was also a husband. And Johnny Storm wasn't just the hothead guy, he also was the sister of um, Invisible... He, he was the brother of Invisible Woman, and Ben Grimm, like, bemoaned his fate as the thing. And he actually had, like, the biggest... He looked like a big rock monster, but he was the most sincere and lovely guy in the world. Like, everyone loves Ben Grimm. I have a quote. Okay. I have I have a quote from David Sims of The Atlantic. Um, the Fantastic Four were prone to bickering, wrestled with romantic drama on their own, and were recognizable flawed people, each with the potential to be remote, hot-headed, or arrogant. And yeah, that's... They are some of the like first some of the most human comic characters especially at the time because let's this is 1961 i believe when the first story comes out um superheroes were just coming back into mainstream comics you were like seeing the early stages of the silver age coming in and this was Marvel's first attempt at bringing back the superhero genre. And rather than doing what DC was doing and taking and cre creating a legacy for a lot of their characters and giving us new interpretations of the Flash, Green Lantern, all these different characters which are revitalizing characters like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. Marvel went in a direction where the characters aren't going to be gods or like super scientists or billionaires or people you aspire to be like DC. They are going to be the people you actually are. And so all of the early Marvel characters are flawed, driven by sometimes selfish reasons. Um, in the case of Spider-Man, the world is literally against him at every single moment and they bicker. They have drama. They're messy. That That's why I love the X-Men so much, especially 70s, 80s X-Men, because it's messy. And there's so many, so much relationship drama and all these arguments and fights and schisms and people make up or sometimes they don't. And I love it. Yeah. And like, it's such a dynamic, interestingly, between the heroes and the villains, too, because like the villains also got that treatment. They weren't like your stereotype. Well, I mean, they, you know, it's early days Marvel, so they definitely talk in grandiose ways. Every single pose of Doctor Doom is just the most theatrical thing you could ever imagine. But they also, yeah, they also very get into caricature. If you look at early Spider-Man villains, they're all just meatheads running around with sacks of money yeah i saw the, uh there's this skit on youtube of the guy who's like 
Spider-Man uh, encountering all of his villains for the first time and he meets Rhino and like he, he's like what's your story big guy uh, bodybuilder who comes from a broken family oh no my parents I have a uh, I'm, I'm okay and he's like I got it you have a son a daughter a wife or a husband who has an unnamed terminal disease and you need the money for their treatment no is, is that common oh yeah you'd be surprised <laughs> that's that's what I love about especially early Spider-Man because I I recently started reading the original Lee Ditko Spider-Man and so much of it is just dudes with big running around with big sacks of money yeah. and they're just idiots and and that's what that's also what I love about Spider-Man too because Alfred Molina doesn't have a big plan to destroy the world or anything. He literally robs a bank and pulls out sacks of money with dollar signs on them. Which, what bank do you know that's that ready to go in the in the vault? Garrett, have you ever been inside a bank vault? I haven't you been. Don't, I don't you know. don't know. Don't you don't know. know. That's the thing. Suspension of disbelief? I'd buy it. But like, <laughs> Doc Ock running around with big Scrooge McDuck money bags in his I claws. I love it. I love it. And using them as um, weapons, like chucking them at him. It's so good. Yes. Uh, I do want to go back to, like, the origins of the Fantastic Four for a second. You gave us the Stanley perspective. I want to talk about the other extreme architect of this early days of Marvel, Jack Kirby. The king. The king. The king of comics. You look at Jack Kirby's career, started in the 30s doing stuff, doing freelance work for all the big publishers. And then he and Joe Simon create Captain America for Timely, which is now Marvel. Um, they create the Boy Commandos for DC and other, like, war heroes and things like that. Um, and then the Comics Code hits. This law that is, like, comics should not contain... Stories of horror, crime, sex, violence, like huge censorship issues. And that also co course coincided with the fall of the superhero medium as well. And so for the late 40s and throughout the 50s, Kirby was writing and he was drawing and he was making comics, but he was struggling to find work. And then he comes back to Marvel right as the boom of superheroes like reignites yeah it's like a, a planets aligned situation it really was yeah um and this is this is the early days of the new marvel under the leadership of stan lee yeah so this is this is not the earliest comic we've covered on this podcast um the the first issue of the x-men is the earliest we've gone back but this is still in the days of what was known as like the Marvel method. Yeah. Where the writer brings in a short synopsis and expects the artist to come up with every detail, plot the entire issue, do all the art, and then the writer would add the dialogue in after that was all completed. Yeah. And it's like I was recently reading uh uh later Fantastic Four comic where the Thing actually passed away. Uh, the Thing, like, died in a Thing whole situation. And the rest of the team goes to heaven to get him back. And mm -hmm. while they're there, they run into the one above all, God. 
and God yes. is depicted as Jack Kirby. I mean... <laughs> He's, like, literally sketching out existence. The phone rings. He picks it up and, like, goes, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, you want uh, them to show up at uh, Black Panther in the next panel? Great. And they're like, wait, who called? Oh, my collaborator. Enough said. Let, yeah. That's, well, that's how it was. That's how it always was. And you get stuff like Nuff said, or the alliteration, or the one-liners, or all this thing, these things, because Lee was just looking to fill speech bubbles or narration captions. Yeah. And you have so, you have to give so much credit to the artists at this time, Kirby, Ditko, um, Everett, Bill Everett, who did early Daredevil, mm-hmm. all these other artists, because they were working with Lee, and Lee was the writer behind nearly every Marvel title for the for the beginning, but he was just filling in the blanks. Yeah. It was the artists who were doing all the major work and coming up with all these stories and characters. Well, comics are a visual medium, like. Yeah, they are great storytelling uh, vehicles, but they also the artwork in them is like gorgeous and tells a story. That's a whole part of why they are so effective. They're more. I, I will argue that they are more of a visual medium than film or TV or these other things that we consider to be visual mediums, because those are driven by directors writers actors it's so much more collaborative and and all of those individual pieces could work on their own yeah but with comics the art is so important to how the reader perceives the story that it could not work if it was just a comic script on a page. Right. And it's why Kingdom Come works, it's why Watchmen works most effectively as a graphic novel, because, like, that's the best medium to tell those stories in a visual sense. Yes. Uh, going back to your original question about Fantastic Four, um, the, yeah, the thing I also really love about them is their relationship with Um, They lived not in a fictional city, but in New York City itself. Yes. And that was a big part of Lee's thing. He was like, why invent a city when we live right in Midtown Manhattan? Let's have them live in Midtown Manhattan. It's great. And that that leads to things like having the Baxter Building be an icon of the skyline of New York. That leads to things like the Yancey Street Gang. All these... Things that just make it so much more robust, human. Yeah. It's well, it's it's the same sort of thing as again, I'm gonna talk about Raimi Spider-Man, mm-hmm. but Raimi's New York is pretty much the Marvel New York of the 60s, where everyone is a character. And by that I mean you look at the people in the background and you at least know some of their story. Yeah. Like, everyone knows the deal with uh, Mr. Abib, the landlord, J. Jonah Jameson. Like, you you know the deal as soon as they yeah. show up. And the Fantastic Four's mailman was a recurring character yeah. for most of the Lee Kirby era. Oh, remind me of his name. Um, 
Willie Lumpkin. Willie Lumpkin, that's it. I almost said Herbie, but that was the robot. No, he shut. I love Herbie. I love Herbie. <laughs> Herbie rules. Herbie's um, great. I also love it. There were moments in those comics that were just like them having to deal with not giant cosmic events, but just, you know, basic home things. Like, yeah, um, they share a tenant, like, they live in an apartment complex. And Reed owns the top to four floors, and that's where he does all his experiments. And this, these neighbors in the building are always reporting on him. I, that's what I love about early Baxter building, because Reed hadn't bought the whole building yet. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like it's an office building. It is an apart, it's a, it's an apartment co-op. It's an uptown apartment. <laughs> and Reed just bought the penthouse when the rent was low. And as people continued to leave or die out, he just bought the lower floors. Yep. <laughs> and just, I love it. They're just moving out. I can't deal with it. Another extra dimensional thing. I can't. I can't. I'm going to Nancy. I'm going to Jersey. I I love how much of early Fantastic Four is, like you said, family drama. But I also love their relationship with sci with the with the science fiction and with and with the world out there because this is 1961 this is pre-moon landing but right in the middle of the space race Mm -hmm. we had space on the brain yes and you can instantly tell simply from the vibe of how they present space travel and technology and all these high-concept sci-fi ideas, and it's wonderful. And this is the kind of sci-fi I love. Yeah. I I love exploration-based sci-fi. I think it's great. I am making my way through the treks. <laughs> it's slow, yeah. but... They're very surreal. But I... Yeah, I really enjoy that it's not always a life-or-death thing when it comes to sci-fi with the fantastic four it is more about discovery and the nature of creation and possibility and all these different concepts yeah and that's why they often end up encountering characters in the canon that are so like game-changing for the rest of marvel like at one point they literally like are just exploring the ocean one day and they ro- run into Atlantis. Who happens to be in Atlantis? Namor, Submariner. Let's go. <laughs> and I promised myself I wouldn't talk about any other Fantastic Four run other than Lee or Kirby. But. Yeah. Quick, quick sidebar about Jonathan Hickman's 2009 to 2013, 12, 13 run. So much of that is the Fantastic Four discovering new things about themselves, about people they've known for years, about societies that they've never known about on the Earth, in space, all these different things, and just responding to them. Yeah. They are a response team more than they are a superhero team. Oh, I yeah. They, they don't go out and put out, like, fire. And, lot, like, a, a lot of superheroes are, like, 
firemen in that sense. Like, crisis happens, they go and they deal with it. Um, but with the Fantastic Four, they always take the initiative and they're always going to the undiscovered countries and yes. uh, unexplored regions of both Earth and space because Reed cannot leave well enough alone. <laughs> And I love, I love about, I love that about. Him. So do I. He's uh, such Reed a- Richards. I think he can best be summed up. Just there's, I can't remember what run this is from, but he's like, he's looking through a microscope, discovering a genome, and he's singing a little made-up song about said genome. <laughs> he he loves science so much, and to like to goofy levels yeah but it's so sincere it's so endearing you'd feed off his own excitement and love like every time he goes fascinating and he's just so enamored by the science like and just being around him like the others learn about science just by being around him like ben Grimm now knows how to put together a particle accelerator from scratch just by hanging out with the guy that's why i don't like these theories I don't like the people who say Reed Richards is the greatest villain of the Marvel Universe. Because he's not. Hmm. He is a man driven by discovery and problem solving. And does he make mistakes? Yes, but he is a human being. Yeah. There was a great quote from him in the comics. uh, Him talking about comparing him, Captain America, and Iron Man. And he was saying his family is like a big part of his driving like purpose like everything he does can be tied back to that he loves discovery he loves exploration and he loves doing that with his family that he loves whereas someone like tony is someone who lives in the future but is stuck in the present moment yes and again not to go back to the hickman run but you see in that in those stories the Council of Reeds, this interdimensional society of Reed Richards who are all-powerful, who have solved every problem on their respective planets, who have saved multiverses, but who are cold, aloof, individualistic, and it's all because they had given up their families. Yeah. Like, this, like the Reed we follow along is, like, the most sincere and heartfelt of them all and he's just as brilliant as they are and i fully believe the council of reeds is where rick and morty got the idea for their council of ricks i'm sure i'm sure and like fine for them but they miss they miss the point with why the council of reeds exists although i will say when reed is the maker he's pretty terrified see the maker is an interesting character that we cannot talk about today. Yes, we because have, that is that's all it's too of the kettle of fish. <laughs> it's it's too much. It's ultimate universe. Reed becomes a villain and is now still in the six one six universe. He's there. He yeah. exists. <laughs> Just oh if, yeah. If that's that's what's so weird about because we'll talk about the ultimate universe in twenty twenty three. I have some plans for Ultimate Spider Man, which is. The only good part of the Ultimate Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were really picky and choosy when they came to deciding which Ultimate Universe characters survived the Cataclysm and merged with the 616. Because I can pretty much only think of two. Yeah. Miles Morales. 
<laughs> and Reed Richards, the maker. Yeah, the only two successful characters from that universe. They they work. Yeah. They really work. And I, yeah. At one point, but, didn't like Galactus even fuse with like their version, who was like a big parasite thing? Yeah, I think, well, that Galactus was also dead very early in the lifespan of the Ultimate Universe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I didn't like their Galactus. He just, I, I like... Their Galactus was weird. Um, So much cannibalism in the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, and it's like, who's writing this and what kind of issues you got? Mark Millar. Yeah. We know, we, we know who's writing it, and we know what kind of issues he has. Cannibalism. He's, yeah, he's... Mark Millar and Jeff Loeb, not good people. Who knew? Not at all. We all knew. <laughs> the world. Um, the world knew. The world knew. Let's talk about... Let's talk about Galactus. I, th I think we have to let's, at this point. Let's talk about him. I have um, some quotes from Stan Lee about... I have quotes from Lee and Kirby. Um, uh, this, this first one's from Lee. The only way to top ourselves was to come up with an evildoer who had almost godlike powers. Why not have him be a really evil person? A demigod should be beyond mere good and evil. He'd just be hungry. And the nourishment he'd require is the life force and energy from living planets. Yeah. That's that's the Stan Lee approach to pretty much every concept he comes up with. Like, why, why, why is it not this? Why doesn't he just eat planets? Why not? It's like, it's just a shark. Like, a shark isn't bad or evil. Its diet just happens to consist of living beings. And he's hungry. He's hungry. I gotta eat. I gotta live. Um, Jack Kirby has uh, a more in-depth quote about Galactus. Excellent. Galactus in actuality is a sort of god. He is beyond reproach, beyond anyone's opinion. In a way, he is kind of a, a kind of a Zeus. He is his own legend, and of course, by he and the Silver Surfer are sort of modern legends, and they are designed that way. Yeah, and you definitely get that with him. And I remember you're reading a story. I have this copy of Marvel Masterworks, which is mm -hmm. basically all the classic Golden Age comics rolled into one big chunk. Uh, comic. I have one for Doctor Strange, I got one for Silver Surfer, uh, and in the Silver Surfer one, uh, he's talking about, there's like little, like those VHS tapes of Spider-Man, there's little forewords by Stan Lee, written by him, and he's writing how he described Galactus to Jack Kirby, and like, what his whole deal was, Jack Kirby comes back with the art, and he notices this figure in the drawings, this character drawing flying around on a silver surfboard and he's like hey i didn't describe that uh what's what's the deal and he said well i figured if this character really is as powerful as we want him to be he wouldn't be going around finding these planets he'd have somebody to do it for him he'd have a herald and stanley was like hmm i like that idea so now he's writing that dialogue for silver surfer and mm -hmm. he soon finds the perfect platform to spout start putting his own beliefs in like he said in the foreword as much as i love all the heroes something about silver surfer he is the purest representation of my own personal beliefs about humanity and its position in the world and its position in the grander scheme i and i think 
that's definitely on Kirby's end too, because I have a lot of quotes about the biblical implications of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. And Kirby and spirituality is its own episode, <laughs> I think. And Kirby's fascinations with different religions and pantheons and value systems could fill up so much more than just this one podcast episode. It's how we get things like the Eternals and the New Gods when he goes yes. over to DC. Which are interesting in their own right, and yeah. I love the New Gods. So do and I. I know, I, but I think you have pushed me towards really getting into the Eternals more, because you... You have had some Eternals love that I did not have <laughs> yeah. because I was I'm all in on New Gods, but I know you can argue in favor of the Eternals. Well, New Gods works really well because I, it's like its own world where Jack can do whatever he wants with them. And they're cosmic in scale. They are literally gods and abstract beings, but the Eternals are interesting because it's a it's a the whole ancient alien conspiracy thing gone wild, given that mm -hmm. Marvel treatment. And some people will say it does appropriate a little bit in the early days. Um but at the same time I wonder how much of like it is like I I, I don't know. Like I really like the new take on old uh, myths and stuff. Like yeah, it's I Icarus was had a hand in the building of the Ark. I love that. <laughs> it's it's really interesting. You look at Galactus and the Silver Surfer, and then you look at the New Gods, and you look at the Eternals, and you see a progression of Kirby's spirituality as he got older. And it's really interesting to see, and sadly. It all was hated by people at the time. Yeah. Everyone hated New Gods. Everyone hated Eternals. But then, when they started making Darkseid and Superman fight, they suddenly got... <laughs> Once Darkseid was moved from the pages of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, to Superman proper, <laughs> everything was okay. Yeah. <laughs> I loved... I love that... They give Kirby three titles of his own to work on and develop his New Gods, Fourth World mythos. And it's New Gods, Mr. Miracle, Forever People. And then they just say to him, we want you to write a fourth title. And you can incorporate it into your massive story that you're telling however you like. But we need you to write Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> And it's like, why? <laughs> why, it DC? <laughs> it it works. It works. Oh, man, imagine the conversations between them. I will argue in favor of Jimmy Olsen, but that's another podcast episode. I, yes, I, I, I have some love for Jimmy Olsen. But it's kind of cool that you mentioned biblical implications of Galactus, especially. You could, like, say there's an angelic quality to Silver Surfer. Definitely. Uh, he also has just the... Uh, innate nobility and in his later runs uh he ends up becoming mortal enemies with mephisto literally mm -hmm. marvel's satan analog mm -hmm. and the first time we meet mephisto is when he's trying to get the silver surfer's soul but in terms of galactus it's really cool because we get 
some backstory on him. And we learn, oh, he's not just this unknowable cosmic thing that's hunting for our planet because he wants to eat it. He's also, he hails from the universe before ours, and he was present at the Big Bang, and he consumes planets to replenish his energy stores to survive because he's supposed to be the one at the end of the universe that makes the next Big Bang. So he's mm -hmm. literally the tail, the bookends of the universe. He is the creation and he is the end. It's very interesting. And you also have at the end of this story arc, he relieves the surfer of his herald duties mm -hmm. and strands him on Earth, basically making him a fallen angel. Yep. And then Surfer's got to learn some humanity. He's got to learn what made... Because he... Galactus was like, Fine, this planet's so cool. You love it so much, you'll betray me. You're stuck here. And for a guy who's been sailing around space and loves his freedom and loves to be able to go anywhere he wants, to be stuck in one place is the worst thing you can do to him. It's... Quick sidebar, it's never said in this story arc, but can we talk about the Silver Surfer's name for a second? I just need everyone to know, I ne everyone needs to know, what the man who rides a surfboard, his name is Norrin Rad, and his last name is Rad with two Ds, and he's so cool. <laughs> Norrin frickin' Rad. <laughs> That's Rad, Norrin. He's Rad, it's, <laughs> he's so, he's so cool. He's just a cool guy. So let's let's talk about what happens in these in this story. It's fairly simple. Um the surfer shows up on Earth and he's causing a commotion and then the watcher appears to read and is basically explains everything about Galactus. He's coming and they got to do something about it. And Fantastic 4 meet Galactus, and they try to reason with him, and they find that talking won't work, and so Galactus starts fucking shit up. And then they learn of this device called the Ultimate Nullifier, and that can... could possibly kill Galactus, and rather than killing Galactus with the weapon, Reed just threatens him. And this causes Galactus to retreat, and damns the surfer to life on Earth, and he leaves. Yeah. It's fairly straightforward. It's a fairly straightforward story. Yeah. There's also a lot of uh, build-up in the beginning, too, because, like, in the beginning of the story, um, you know, the Fantastic War out in space, dealing with the Inhumans, and they get on their ship, and they're about to head back. Uh, they do not know that they are being tracked by some scrolls. Uh, and then they're like, Sir, we have a visual. We can take him out. He's like, Wait, no, hang on. I got a word that Galactus is on his way. We gotta go. We gotta go right now. And they're like, But, sir, they're right. He's like, Did you not hear me? Galactus is coming. We gotta bounce. And the scrolls have been a prominent enemy for these early days of Fantastic War. Like, one of their biggest enemies. Shape-shifting aliens who have, like, vast, like, technology abilities and they are part of a extra-galactic empire. Like, they're, they're a big threat when they show up. 
So for in the first couple of pages, for them to go, this guy that's coming, we're terrified of him. So much so, we're not even going to try to fight mm -hmm. the Fantastic Four, even just based on a word that he's coming. I love it. Yeah. It, it's, it ex it's the perfect way to set up a threat. Because mm -hmm. you're already like, whoa, who's Galactus? Why is he, why is he so threatening? I, I do want to talk about it's it's a thing about 60s comics that it it's a it's not a pet peeve, but it does like bother me every time I go back to 60s comics. The first half of the first issue of this three issue story is devoted to wrapping up this inhuman storyline from the previous issue. Yeah, at, at literally at the climax of this inhuman stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have to see all that wrapped up when you're just when you see on the cover. Why is the Watcher there? What, who's Galactus? I want to know what that is. Yeah, you're like, I don't care about Karnak. It's like what the heck is like Medusa, Black Bolt? What's happening? The the, the Inhumans are eugenicists. Eugenicists. Yeah. I don't want to hear about them. I don't want to go back to there. Give me this. Gal I don't want to. I don't want to talk about Inhumans. Let's go to Galactus and then. Uh, um, I love the way Jack Kirby draws space. Yep, and you get you get a lot of Jack Kirby space in these three issues, and it's so fun. It's so pretty. I love the design of Galactus's ship because it's that collage art style of like actual, real photorealistic images jammed together to create something new he does this later in new gods and eternals and it rules mm -hmm. definitely adds the whole otherworldly vibe yes um and then he shows up uh the watcher does and he's been trying to like hide the planet you know yeah He's been, like, making an asteroid in the atmosphere, an asteroid belt to kind of cover it up. And the Fantastic Four, they have no idea what's going on. They're trying to, like, fix the issue as they see it. And then the Watcher was like, guys, you don't get it. I was helping you. I was here to save you. And, of course, this is early Marvel, so all the public still hates the Fantastic Four. Mm -hmm. uh, someone throws a brick at Johnny. <laughs> Because, like, the, the Watcher made fire in the sky to hide the planet, and everyone's like, oh, Human Torch did it! They just throw a brick at him, and then someone sprays him with a hose, and... <laughs> it's like, oh, they can't catch a break. I love early Marvel civilians, because they are ready to brawl. They'll throw down. <laughs> um, this is not the first time we hear, um... It's clobbering time is a catchphrase, um, but it does give us the origin of who taught Ben the phrase. Mm -hmm. um, Ben's Aunt Petunia, yep. as quoted by him. I, I love it. Um, this is this is my big thing. This is what I was telling you about earlier in the notes. I love here. Here is the here is the specific element of Fantastic Four ephemera that will instantly get me to like any Fantastic Four story if it's included. Yeah. You put Ben Grimm in front of a bunch of street toughs. <laughs> because it's so fun. 
I love the Yancey Street Gang as a concept. I love how there's so much science going on. There's so much space sci-fi things. And Ben will just go off into an alley and just punch people. Yep. <laughs> he's the best He's the best part of the Fantastic Four. He really I, is. I, I'll say it. Without him, um, they're just complete. It's it's the mind, body, soul, heart aspect of it. Yeah. I think. At one point, didn't, like, one of them try to, like, punch him, and he's literally rock, and they broke their hand. And he yeah, just, and then he flicks him. He just flicks him away. He flicks him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he calls Galactus a crumb bum. Yeah. I, I, I... Ben, you have the best vocabulary. Reed, Reed, I'm sorry, I can't go into space. This guy just called me a crumb bum. This guy just called me a crumb bum, crumb dome. I gotta go get him. I love... Sadly, um, I think this is one of those stories where uh, Sue and Johnny kind of get sidelined. Yeah. Johnny gets stuff later when he he's the one who's sent to retrieve the ultimate nullifier. Yeah. But Sue... Really does get sidelined in this one. She does, which is unfortunate. It's it's right after their marriage too, so it's yeah the whole the whole thing of oh now that you're married you must be the housewife. It's like well heck heck with that I'm gonna <laughs> which it sucks for Sue because she was not the first female superhero with agency but the she had the most depth at the time oh definitely like she wasn't just like the wife and she wasn't just the sister like she had her own personality and like wants and everything and she like was a person and you and they thankfully like they do some tension with that in the story there are couples argument scenes and you get some of that sue is tired of reed's obsessive problem solving yeah you can really feel for her and everything is justified it's not it's not just her whining about being left off to the side or reed not spending time with her she is she worries about reed and she cares about him and she wants him to be okay, and she really is the grounding force with him. Yeah, and she's also, like, the, it's put into context because Galactus is a threat they've never really faced before. And it could very well be the end of the world. So when she has these issues with her husband, their issues are she's like, I might never get a chance to say these thoughts exactly. again. Exactly. It is the end of the world. Yeah, Galactus is gonna go nom nom on the planet. We should we we gotta talk about Galactus. Yes. Because Okay, first thing. His design in this one. Yeah. Because you think Galactus, what colors do you, the listener, think? You think blue and purple, right? Yeah. Well, it's a good thing this episode is coming out in December, because Galactus is decked out in the red and the green. He is Santa Claus, and he is coming to town. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. What? Mommy? Daddy? Why was there a giant footprint in our chimney? I don't know, sweetie. I have come to the human... <gasps> ah! 
Oh no. Santa, um, did you get my letter? <laughs> the colors don't work together. Nah. I mean they do, but they don't work for Galactus. He shows up and you're just kinda like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he has a giant G on his chest at this point. Yeah. It's branding. He's br- <laughs> needs to get his his public image out there, you know. So so you're saying so you're saying once the server was abandoned on Earth, Galactus lost his PR agent. Yeah, that's why he had to go through a change. Yeah. Um, he looks like a proto-new god or a proto-returnal. Even his, like, body armor is complex. Yeah, it doesn't look like just, like, standard armor. It looks like clothing mixed with metal, mixed with, like, something out of, like, ancient Rome. He's got a horned helmet. Now, up until this point, because I haven't read a lot of early Fantastic Four, my um, my only real experience with Galactus is uh, Secret Wars 1984. Ah. And in that story, Galactus just stands there mm-hmm. for the for the entire time. And he and he just T poses while sucking up the planet's energy. Yeah. And it was so strange to hear him talk. <laughs> I forgot that he talks sometimes. Yeah. So like a lot of people like to portray him as like a force of nature. Like a yeah. like a walking hurricane or a walking gamma ray burst or something like that. Just something that that's why they made up. him a cloud. That's why they made him a stupid cloud. Yeah, and it's like, well that's not scary or compelling. It's like it's a it's like akin to a disaster movie. And there is some, like, to something to that, that he represents a fundamental aspect of the universe, it's revealed. Like, he's not just the big alien baddie, he, like, is fundamental to existence, like, he's that important and that powerful. But he's also, was once, to, co- to quote Cobra Commander, he was once a man! Yeah. Like, he has his own desires, his own... Uh, personality, and I think that's kind of why he uh, got Silver Surfer to begin with, because Surfer, like, when Galactus showed up to Surfer's planet, he was, like, about to eat it, and then Surfer was like, hey, wait, 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 I will, um, vouch for them, and I, well, not even vouch for them, tell you what, I'll help you out on your search, I'll help you find planets, because you're doing this all by yourself, and like, his goal was to, like, help him find plants that didn't have much life. But Galactus, I like to imagine, was kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of lonely. He needs a friend. I need a friend, and, you know, I did this exact kind of thing when I was younger and still human. I flew up to this big cosmic thing and said, hey, hey, hold up. So, like, he saw a bit of himself in the guy. And it's kind of why I like the idea that there's an under like an unspoken respect between the two of them. Yeah. I I really do like that. Um we talked about how Sue sort of does get sidelined in these issues. Yeah. You know who doesn't get sidelined? The defining character of the Fantastic Four supporting cast, Alicia Masters. Baby. Yes. She she is we should, let's let's talk about the origins of Alicia for a second. Um, she is the niece 
or daughter, I can't remember exactly, of... Or, no, I think she's, like, the stepdaughter of Fantastic Four villain, the Puppet Master. Yes. Who is... He sound, he's exactly what he sounds like. Yeah. He's controls he's people. evil puppet man. Yeah. And he looks creepy. Terrifying. Yeah, he's a creepy guy. And But Alicia is a blind sculptor. And she's introduced as an artist who... Who who works beyond her disability and she is amazing disabled rep in comics. She is such a three-dimensional love interest for Ben Grimm. Um, they're finally married and have children in current continuity. Um, and her relationship to Ben is so great because it, it's the thing, it's the concept of, Ben's always scared that no one is going to love a monster. Yeah. And she comes in and instantly falls in love. And at first, Ben feels like it's that it's just because she can't see what he really looks like. But she loves him beyond that. Yeah. And, like, she fully, like, as a sculptor, like, she keeps trying to replicate Ben in her art. Mm-hmm. And she sees the good in everyone. Yeah. She sees, like, she sees past the surface with literally everyone. Mm-hmm. And that plays the role, that that's her role in this story, because the Silver Surfer crashes into her apartment. Yeah. And she immediately calls him out on why, why are you doing this? Why are you helping Galactus? And she instigates his change of heart that has him stick up for the people of Earth. Like, helps him rediscover some long-lost compassion and, you know, soul that he had, like, put on the back burner for a while, as his job required him to do. He was just like... Yeah, you know, I tried to, like, lead him to lifeless planets after a while, but then after a while I just kind of started, like, forgetting and Mm -hmm. being more like, yes, Galactus is more powerful and more important than them. Galactus's life matters more than the people of the planets he's consuming. So I just had to, like, have that sort of mentality. But she reminds him that the people on the planets are individuals and they matter, and what they can create matters. I'm gonna make a weird parallel here that'll make sense to the two of us, but might not make sense to some listeners of this podcast. Okay. There's a line in Hades Town where they're talking to Eurydice when she goes to Hades and she's gonna for it's basically setting up that the more time she spends with this guy, she's going to forget and she will forget everything and lose what made her, her. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I'm getting at with this. Yeah. (laughs) And it really is like surfer is supposed to be a noble soul. He is that, but just the job wore him down. Yeah. He's, (laughs) he sold out. Yeah. He literally sold out. 
and he sold well he sold us he sold himself out to save his planet so his intentions were good his intentions were noble but he lost himself and it like when stacked up against someone as cosmic as galactus it could it's easy to understand why he did that but then like when he rediscovers his own soul and his own humanity then like it's all the more impactful yeah and like it adds to like that um aspect of not just him but also this really cool thing that is never really mentioned but like you mentioned well you mentioned it a minute ago but the way they beat Galactus is by threatening him. They don't use the ultimate nullifier on him. They just give him an ultimatum. It's like, go away, or we'll use this. And it's literally a Mexican standoff. <laughs> yeah, and the ultimate ultimate nullifier as a weapon is pretty much the the limit of his power of its power is determined by the wielder's intellect. Yeah. So if you have a, if you have a high enough intellect, it can literally do anything. And one of the smartest men in the Marvel universe. <laughs> yeah, no, the men, the smartest man in the Marvel universe yeah. is Reed is wielding it. So Galactus is quaking in his boots when he sees that happening. But it's also kind of cool because it like showcases some honor from Galactus. Like, he reveals himself to be someone who honors his word. Mm -hmm. And, like, actually has a sense of, yeah, um, I will leave, and I won't come back. Um, how can we trust you? So you have the word of Galactus. And, like, he honors, like, he has, there's, like, even, he, even he, because no other planet does this. No other planet stands up to him. So he rediscovers, probably unintentionally, some of that for himself as well. That rediscovery of compassion from the interference of the, the people of the planet. Like, he rediscovers that sense of honor he probably had when he was just a man. Yes. Um, I want to play a little game. Okay. Because I found a list. Um... Of the 15 smartest characters in the Marvel Universe. Oh boy, okay. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this and I was like, who are the top, like, smartest characters in the Mar Marvel Universe? Um, let me, is this a better list? Let me see. No, that's for the cinematic universe. No, I don't want to hear about Dr. Eric Selvig. Boy. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so this is Marvel Comics. This is, unfortunately, it's a Screen Rant article and I don't, enjoy that organization but um i have the 15 smartest characters in the marvel universe and we're gonna play a little game of hang not kind of hangman but i just want you to see how i want to see how many of these you can guess okay so um it's the 15 smartest 15 smartest we have talked we have we have said number one okay um Guessing down, I would say number 15 is Amadeus Cho? He's on the list. He's way further down. Okay. Uh, he is like six. I would 
Seppe. Um, well, the people I'm thinking of are already pretty high up, I would guess. Yeah, so let's let's go let's go fifteen to one. Let's 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 see how many of these make sense to you. Um, number fifteen, Otto Octavius. That makes sense. All right, yeah. he's a smart dude. Yeah, he's. Um, number 14, Shuri. I'm glad there's some Wakandan representation on this list. Okay, yeah. Um, number 13, my favorite little asshole, Quentin Quire of the X-Men. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, he, he gets his own episode. Um, number 12, The Leader. Okay, yeah, big brain. Yep. Uh, number 11, uh, Hank McCoy. The yeah, beast. yeah, I'd see that. Yeah, that that sounds very right. Yeah. Number ten, Amadeus Cho. Yes. Um, number nine, Hank Pym. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number eight, Bruce Banner. Yeah. Number seven, Tony Stark. Okay. <laughs> there are some people later in the list that throw off the curve a little bit. Yeah, I'm just Tony seven. Because number six is the High Evolutionary what Herbert Wyndham. Um, this is not 15. This list is not 15 people. Okay, who is, how many? It's like 13, because the top three is afterwards. It's, oh, no, wait, no, I, there's more. There was more to this list. Never mind, it is 15. <laughs> I didn't scroll down for far enough. Okay. Um, number five is Victor Von Doom. Okay. Uh, number four is Lunella, Lunella Lafayette, a moon girl from Moon Girl and Devil, Devil Dinosaur. She's the nine-year-old girl with an intellect stronger than uh, Ban- Doctors Banner, Stark, and Pym. Uh-huh. She's great. She's great. Okay. Uh, number f- three is Reed Richards. Okay. Um, number wo- Number two is Thanos, which... <laughs> Okay, that's, screen rant. That's cheating. Shut up. That's cheating. That's cheating. Number one is the only successor, is the only valid successor to read of Valeria Richards, his own daughter. Okay. Who, who was smarter than her own father when she was three years old. Which, side note, I re- I've realized recently I don't like the trope of the child genius. Child genius tropes are weird. It's it it, it feels, it's really weird. It feels disingenuine to me. I I buy it for Valeria specifically because a her father is the smartest man in the in the universe. Then wasn't she also raised by Doctor Doom? Yes. So that makes she sense. was raised by Doctor Doom. So. Already there. You know he's giving her a good education. Well, yeah, he's her Uncle Doom. Yeah, Uncle Uncle Doom. Um, and the, but then also her brother is the most power. Is was the most powerful mutant in the world. <laughs> Fuck you, Dan Slot. Oh my gosh! But then um, he also uh, fun connection between Franklin and Galactus. Future, Fla- Future Franklin has go- travels the 
the galaxy with Galactus as his herald. Yeah, Galactus and he. At one point, like, Which, towards the end of the universe, like, it's revealed Franklin's supposed to be the next Galactus. Like, he's gonna yeah. take over in the next universe. Yeah, and, well, that's... Going back to the Hickman run, um, let's see how many times I said that in this episode. <laughs> um, but the whole story of that run is the machinations of future Franklin and future Valeria just trying to make the world, the universe right. Yeah. And it's like, all right, I guess we raised a couple of not just child prodigies, but gods. Yeah, literally. Um, Final thoughts on the Galactus trilogy? Um, I think it is a standout cornerstone for Marvel. Really do. It introduced I think... a big character villain in the form of Galactus, and it introduced um, so many a brand new great hero in the Silver Surfer, and it helped showcase what a team like the Fantastic Four is capable of in character and in capability by facing a threat of that magnitude. Absolutely. I think it is up there in the seminal comic stories of the Silver Age, not just Marvel stories. I think this is one of, if not the best of the Silver Age of comics. I think if you look at if you look at the night Gwen Stacy died as the a beginning of the Bronze Age and what that era of comics does where it gets darker and way more just exploring deeper social issues and those things, the Galactus trilogy is so definitive of what the Silver Age is. It's Silly, but also a hundred percent sincere. Yeah, and that's why it doesn't. Love. Yeah, and it doesn't make any jokes or quips, or try to comment on anything outside of it. It is just a story about these four incredibly talented human beings fighting a hungry god. Fighting a hungry, hungry god. That's my new favorite board game. Yep, hungry, hungry gods. <laughs> Uh, which, and this is a good way to segue into the final bit of this podcast, um, it makes me scared about how they're gonna do the Fantastic Four in the, in the MCU. Yeah. And, cause I'm, I'm in full MCU fatigue still. Yeah, I'm kind of there as well. And, it's partially because nothing's sincere. Mm-hmm. It's all delivered with a wink to the camera, or a fourth wall break, or a cameo that we didn't need. Yeah, and didn't pay off. Yeah, and it scares me about the Fantastic Four. Yeah. I... Especially as we're getting close to what is rumored to be the introduction of them. Um, apparent like it's the rumor that they're showing up in Ant Man and the Wasp, and I don't want it. I just want yeah sincere Fantastic Four, Since... and there's a lot of 
stuff I don't like about the 2005-2007 Tim Story movies. There's a lot I don't like about Fant Forstick. Like, that, um, that's its own video. But, especially the 2005 movie, there's a sincerity to it that feels that if you put MCU on one end of the spectrum, Raimi Spider-Man on the other, it's closer to Raimi than it is to MCU. Oh, yeah. Because it knew where it was coming from. Yeah, it it knew where it was coming from, even if it made Galactus a fucking cloud. Really? <laughs> and it, it did make Silver Surfer look cool. Like that was my, it did. It, that was my introduction to him. I just you know, wished there was more of him. You know what is a good time hmm. that people on comics Twitter told me about, and I listened to them, and I was su- pleasantly surprised. What? The 1990s Roger Corman Fantastic Four that was never released to the public. Yeah. And it looks shitty. (laughs) But you are so impressed with how, A, just how sincerely goofy it is, and B, how they did so much with so little. Yeah. I kind of love watching those old like ones just because it I don't know there's almost a comforting quality to it like you watch them yeah, and it's, like I feel good watching like they hadn't perfected like it's not realistic but you're okay with that yeah in a shocker in a world with a rock man a stretchy man an invisible woman and a fireman we're getting hung up on realism <laughs> yeah we don't need realism and we don't need to, uh, we don't need to deflate the situations with humor. No. It's kind of like. So I, I saw a TikTok audio. I heard a TikTok audio, and they were like, people always. I, I love when people are always like, oh, you only use fantasy as an escape. And I'm like, yeah. Get me yeah. out of here. <laughs> yeah. Let, let us hang out in the world where this family of explorers and superheroes just get to live their lives. Yeah, and I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, at the very least, that they'll get some good writers, good directors, good uh, actors for MCU Fantastic Four, and they'll honor that, and who knows, maybe, like, Fantastic Four can become our new MCU team. Kind of like... So we have... We have the, um... We have the writers and we have the director for the Fantastic Four movie in the MCU already. Um, the writers are these two unknowns who have barely written anything, and that's my issue with Marvel hiring unknown writers who they actively court people who don't have a familiarity with the comics, which that is its whole other thing that I will rant about one day um but the director is matt checkman who uh was the creative force behind wandavision or one of the creative forces behind wandavision okay which if you look just at the first three episodes of wandavision that that is a cool choice yeah but it really lost me in the back half not gonna lie kind of yeah I was and also the whole thing with how it completely 
washed away Wanda's Romani heritage, and with Victor Von Doom being one of the most important Romani characters in all of comics, mm-hmm. I don't have high hopes. Yeah. I, at the very least, want them to keep that creative element in there, keep that creative spirit, and not feel such a need to pump it out as quickly as they have been yes. pumping things out. Give it the time to really freshen up the quality. Let us get to know the characters and get to know them and love them like we got to know Tony and Steve and Thor and Tasha and Clint, all of them. Bruce, like, we got the time to get to know who they were. Don't make Victor the first villain. No. Don't make Galactus the first villain. Make Mole Man the first villain. Literally, (laughs) this is my pitch. Yes. This is my pitch. Make it Mole Man. Make it Mole Man. I make it Mole Man. I'd say the High Evolutionary would be a cool one, but they're already doing that with Guardians. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wizard. Oh, do the Wizard. Wizard would be cool. Wizard would be cool. Um, or uh, the Mad Thinker would be interesting. Mad Thinker. Yeah. Puppet Master. Oh, yo, do Puppet Master yeah. first movie. That would actually... <laughs> they should do Mole Man, and do you know the actor uh, Rick Hoffman? Let me look him up. I feel like he should play Mole Man. I mean, DeVito is right there. DeVito? <laughs> I don't want to see DeVito in an evil role. He's just too great. That's true. But, so, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. Matt Shakeman comes from the Always Sunny crowd. He directed, like, the big episodes of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's behind Nightman Cometh, um, all these important Always Sunny episodes. He has DeVito's number, I bet. <laughs> so he'll be like, how um, do you feel about a guy named Mole Man? Look at, look at the Penguin. Yeah. Look at his portrayal of the Penguin. And tell me you wouldn't want to see him do that, but with underground moloids. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Ah. Um, well, now we have to talk, because we've already seen one member of the Fantastic Four in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oy. Oy. Unfortunately. I was so happy when it was happening, and then I got sad. I was sad when it happened. Yeah. I know you are I know you are a defender of Krasinski as Reed. I think he could pull it off if given the he, right direction. That's the thing. That's the thing. You you look at that Illuminati sequence and you can tell it was the product of reshoots. And you can tell that everyone got to work with Sir Patrick. Um everyone got to work with Anson Mount. Um like some like you can tell that there was some chance of everyone else getting to work together. And then Krasinski is just there. And he looks like he is literally the only one ever in the room and acting against no one. Yeah. And it's like, guys, what was the goal here? What was the goal here? Like, 
you wanted him to did you truly want him to be your fan mr fantastic or were you just trying to make the fans go go hey we listen to the fans aren't we cool and then if that's the case are you gonna kill him right then and there dad asked the same thing oh turns out i um gave it to goodwill oh that's not cool all right i'm sorry that's okay i'm sorry It was like twenty. It was like twenty-five bucks. All good. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> but no, yeah, that was not an effective. It was like people saw. It was. It was like I think it was just designed to like. Be like, oh, I saw the Photoshop. It's like the Photoshop. It's like, oh, we saw the Photoshop, and it's like, no, people wanted that, and then you killed him. I mean, it was fun watching him be spaghetti. It was, and then I was just kind of like, this the rest of the movie. I was like, then she popped Black Bolt's head like a freaking tomato. I loved that part just because it was so Sam Raimi. It and was. That, that was. And I was just kind of like, this is horrifying and would be so cool if I didn't already want to see more from these characters. Yeah, but do we really need the Inhumans in the MCU? No, no, but just give me a black bolt. That's true. Especially when you learn, when you hear about how he when he when Anson Mount got that role, he had just done clown college and he did like extreme clowning and he had developed a whole unique sign language for Black Bolt. Mm-hmm. And then that show was garbage. Uh, it's like he deserves so much better. On both ends. Yeah. And I Yeah. Chris Krasinski is not my choice. If they're gonna if they're gonna go with a new actor and not Krasinski, I have some choices. Yeah. Who are some of your choices? Glenn Howerton. Like I said, always sunny. It could work now that Shakeman's in the director's chair. Yeah. <laughs> He's got the energy. Um, Penn Badgley is like the rumored choice right now, which I think is good. I think is an interesting choice. I still want William Jackson Harper. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cheaty from The Good Place. Um, other roles. The Electric Company. But he's, I think he's got the level of hyper-focused interest. Yeah. I I think he can play anxiety and he can play... He he can play those... He he can play the extreme scientist who is so giddy about his work very well. Oh, very much, yeah. And then just cast Kristen Bell as Sue. (laughs) She's... She could do it. It works. It works. It works. But but that's also the whole Krasinski Emily Blunt thing, which like they've played they're married they've played a couple before. <laughs> they just can do ca- it. Just cast good actors. Yeah, just with good chemistry with each other. Just cast people who can do the thing. Cast a Jewish per- Jewish person to do the thing though. That's the thing. Yeah. Important. <laughs> Important. Yes. Um. Any other thoughts? Um. I think. I don't think I think I've got 
I think I've got it. <laughs> well, one last thing. Yeah. What? One last thing. One last thing. Mr. One last thing. Okay. One last thing. Hey. One last thing. One last thing. One last thing. Um, we'll we'll get to it. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Garrett, for joining us. Um, be sure to um uh, follow us on all our socials. Uh, listen listen to the podcast wherever you wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, uh, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. He just fully. You want to describe for the listeners? He fully just held up a thing action figure. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. Oh my gosh, that is. Here's the thing. That's a good bit. That's a good Goodbye, bit. Bye, everyone. Thanks for having me. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman's theme music was written by Charlotte Rosenthal. Recommended Reading with Jackson Heyman is produced by Mythonomica Productions. Thank you for listening.